Podcasting. The PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon. All right, hour number two, about five minutes past the hour 11. Miller and Condon, Trent Condon, Ken Miller with you until noon. Bottom of the hour, Rob Doster, NBCSports.com on college basketball. Might they be moving the schedule up a couple of weeks? Uh, We'll find out that and uh, pick Rob Doster's college basketball brain. Um, Coming up at 1130 right now, Zubin Mahente joins the program. He joins us each and every week. Zubin, Trent, and Ken, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Your radio voice sounds good this morning, Zubin. <laughs> I would say for those of you that uh, may not have heard, we're thinking about revamping our morning show. And I know I've, my name's been in the press there, but uh, about it with regard to Keyshawn Johnson and Kay Williams joining the show. But uh, nothing's official just yet, but um, looking forward to just being considered. We'll see what happens. Um, I think, you know, this is one of those situations where it'll sort of like, whoever gets the opportunity, it'll be like the previous iterations of this show. So the first one, of course, most notably, uh, Mike and Mike, which is on the air for a really long time yeah, and really was. set the baseline for ESPN radio and for radio guys everywhere. And then that was uh, succeeded by Golick and Wingo when Mike Greenberg went back to television. And so this would probably be the same opportunity for whoever gets it or however the triumvirate is formed. It would be on ESPN2 in the mornings which I think for any host like myself or if somebody else were to come from the TV world, we've been so trained in TV. I've been working in TV for 20 years. I started in New Jersey, worked in Des Moines, Denver, and ESPN. So I've kind of just been trained in the television world. And I know that uh, radio is a little bit different. So just to be able to have the opportunity to make sure this show is a simulcast would probably put any television person that does this show uh, at ease because it'll feel more like a TV show. And as you know, over the years, many shows, whether it's been Mike and Mike or, you know, Don Imus when he was doing his show in news, a lot of these shows, Jim Rome, a lot of these shows eventually morph into television shows. So it's important for any television person that's going to do it to know it'll have that TV component. But, you know, I worked on SportsCenter for nine years, still working on it now. And I'm 42. Trent, you probably are in the same age range. I remember when it was a big deal that we got cable in the house. I don't know if that was a big deal for you. When we got cable, that was a huge deal. And to sit there and work with Linda and Keith and Kenny and some of the people I literally watched on that little box in our basement when everybody had just like one TV in their house instead of like in every single room. So and you have to get up I'm to change it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Remote control, the newfangled remote <laughs> right. control. But it's one of those things where I've enjoyed doing Sports Center. I love doing it. I'm of that age where if you told me I could do any job at ESPN when we got cable and what a big deal it was at the time and the lack of competition, no social media. I would have said I'd love to do the 11 o'clock sports centers where all these people are at that I love and I admire and actually got to work with some of them. So that was really great. Um, but we'll see what happens next. And uh, hopefully by this time next week when we talk, there'll be some sort of resolution. Mm-hmm. Well, just for one on one on this, Zubin. I mean, you're such a night owl, and I know your your schedule you know, um, leads you in that direction. But I get up and I get texts from you at 2 in the morning or 2.30. Zubin, that's when you're going to be getting up for crying out loud, if that's the case, if you guys are on the air at 5.00. Uh, I'm sure you've thought about that. How It's not easy. No, my very, very first job, I had a behind-the-scenes job where I was working in New York City. I grew up in uh, New Jersey, so I just happened to kind of hook on with the station nearby. 
And, you know, those are the old days where I would take the train in by myself at like 2.30 in the morning, show up at 3. So it's certainly a shift that I've done that I'm used to. Uh, it's not really a day part I've worked. Usually we've kind of had the last word on games that happened. We come on after games that happened. And now we'll sort of be either reacting to the games that happened last night or maybe taking a quick look ahead to what might be happening this evening. My biggest thing, uh, anytime I work with anybody, whether it's Jay Will, who I've worked with extensively, or Keyshawn, who I haven't worked with, or Steve Young, or, you know, Rick Sutcliffe, it could be anybody. Uh, the biggest thing that I think we really need to do in those types of situations is to just say, you know, you've been an amazing pressurized moment. It's one thing sometimes I think we lose sight of because we just want their analysis on what just happened, when sometimes the best question is, why did that just happen? You know, Key, you were number one overall draft pick. You played in big moments. Jay won the John R. Wooden Award. He's been in some really tense huddles. I just would like to see us do a little bit more of that. So if everything works out, I would love to just sort of get inside their heads about what it's like to play in the biggest of pressure-packed moments. But it'll definitely be a little bit of an adjustment time-wise if it ends up happening. Um, but it's one of those things that I definitely feel could be uh, well worth it. And it'll be interesting to straddle talking like you're on the radio because the majority of our listeners slash viewers obviously would be on the radio. There would be a TV component as well. So for me, my job is to whoever I'm working with is just sort of make them look good as analysts, get the most information out of them because they've been in a million spots that all of us wish we could have been in. So, yeah, I definitely uh, am ready for a little bit of a challenge if it happens. And I definitely know the new hours are going to be uh, a little different. I will tell you, I'm single. And when you're single, a lot of these things tend to work themselves out a little bit easier. So from that particular standpoint, I guess I'm fortunate. Zubin, we know your love of sports and love of the game. And if it's something where it might be some naps in the afternoon, because you're going to want to stay up late and catch these games and be able to obviously talk about them. And talk about them for a four-hour show is the way that it would be set up. Ken and I, we talk about the difference between a two-hour show and a three-hour show and how immense that is. A four-hour show, there's a lot there, and you got to watch a lot of games to fill those four hours as long as, of course, we get sports back. No question, and, that, and that's really the key, the last part of your statement. I think, you know, I think in any market, the NFL can drive it. For example, you guys don't have an NFL team, but you closely follow four teams, and you have mm-hmm. guests, right, that come on weekly and talk about four teams. So anywhere across the country you're listening to us or watching us on ESPN2, whether it's Get Up or Golick and Wingo or Sports Center, it's got to be NFL-centric. And that's one of the things you really have to think about because it's really the only sport that penetrates all portions of the country. And they've been the least wishy-washy about canceling the season. So if the NFL season starts on time, I think ESPN and any of our programs on radio and TV will go heavy, heavy NFL. You could really make the argument that college football is almost there. Obviously, Boise State kind of filled the void out in that portion of the country. But obviously, you guys know what it's like in Big Ten and Big 12 country. Pac-12 has waned a little bit. Obviously, the South is what it is, Texas, Oklahoma. It's the area where I'm talking to you from right now that really doesn't have any sort of college football fandom. I mean, the two biggest programs are like Rutgers, UConn, Boston College. It doesn't move the needle in any of the three markets, to be honest with you. So we're really hoping for the NFL to come back. But, hey, look, anything can happen any week. I think Monday, you know, most people will tell you don't talk golf on a Monday on TV or on the radio unless it's about Tiger Woods or unless it's about Brooks Kepka pulling out of a tournament due to COVID, due to his caddy. But the reality is, if you're a sports fan, um, Bryson DeChambeau is a fascinating guy. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to talk about him. The monster drives. If you just go to Top Golf and try to tee off as much as you can, <laughs> you fire this guy. Or the way he plays with the same shaft size. 
all these sorts of things that viewers may not be aware of because they're a casual golf fan, they watch the majors, they know Tiger and Phil. So from our standpoint, for four hours, like you said, Trent, if there's amazing people that come to the surface, like a DeChambeau or the emergence of a bubble wallet or whatever's going to happen in Abu Dhabi with this crazy fight island on Saturday, mm-hmm. those are the sorts of things that sometimes can be discussed as well, educate the listener, the viewer a little bit. So, yeah, four hours is daunting, but as long as we get the NFL going and some of these other stories come down the pike that are socially important or sports important, hopefully whoever's doing it will be able to fill it pretty easily. Zubin, uh, your alma mater, Rutgers, announced that there'll be no students on campus. We saw the Ivy League with their announcement uh, headed towards spring for football, assuming that everything works out for that. What, is it, what does it mean for Rutgers, uh, Zubin, as far as you know their participation in the Big Ten? I don't think that it precludes having a football season if there's no students on campus. Uh, what, what do you know about that? Because that's obviously a – I know they're not on the Hawks' schedule this year. They're not part of the crossover – but still, uh, Big Ten may be losing a member for the year. I haven't seen that. What do you know? Yeah, I think two things have to be taken into consideration. And obviously, we'll have to wait to see what happens in the coming weeks. But I don't know how many other states really besides New York, obviously. But New Jersey has had 13,000 coronavirus deaths. 13,000. Mm. And the governor of New Jersey, the Democrat named Phil Murphy, former head of Goldman Sachs, he's actually pretty friendly with President Trump, even though they're in disparate parties, and you know how everything goes today with the polarization. Um, But he has been very hesitant to open up restaurants. He's actually closed them uh, to a degree, and there's been a lot of pushback because many of these restaurants ordered a ton of food, expensive food, meat, seafood, uh, non-perishable, that they said, look, we're going to be able to use them because you said we were opening the restaurants, and then he closed the restaurants down. Uh, Jersey is a huge tourism at the Jersey Shore. There are still people going there. But I think some of the societal issues that they're dealing with, 13,000 deaths, people not being able to go outside to get a meal, um, and the general cautiousness of uh, Governor Murphy has put into a situation where I think Rutgers might be forced to acquiesce to whatever the state wants to do. So, for example, when Greg Schiano was hired as the head coach to return for the second time, it was such a big deal uh, that the governor of New Jersey uh, uh, actually got involved in dealing with it. In, in fact, a former governor as well, Chris Christie, is known to a lot of people. So uh, there's a lot of state politics that go on with the Rutgers football program, which is amazing because 20 years ago, when I was there, first of all, Greg Schiano was hired for the first time about 20 years ago in December. It was a complete non-entity. They had won 11 games over a five-year stretch, which is the worst five-year stretch in school history, and nobody cared at all about Rutgers football. And now they've had a modicum of success. They did have an 11-win season. And people are now interested in it. There's a half a million alumni in the state. So politicians are going to gravitate towards it more because it is a popular sports team and they want to be aligned that way. But I just think what's happening in New Jersey with the overall death totals and kind of scaling back to reopening is probably going to envelop Rutgers football a little bit. I don't know if somebody like uh, Kevin Warren, the new Big Ten commissioner, is going to be able to step in and do anything if the state of New Jersey is in a state of flux. So I think that's the biggest thing to watch out for. Um, they've been really, really hard hit, and the recovery is going well. Death totals are down, of course, as you know, across the country and in New Jersey, but there seem to be a lot of lingering effects going on uh, in the Garden State. I would also mention it's one of the biggest public universities in the country, so having the students stay home is no small thing. Obviously, this isn't like Northwestern that's a private school or anything like that, so that's a big consideration as well, because there, when I was there, it was probably over 33,000-plus was the enrollment, and I would imagine here in the last 20 years, many of these schools have probably seen their enrollment 
uh, rise. I can't confirm that, but uh, my guess would be they'd have to wait to see what the state does because the state has really been hit hard. Zubin, speaking of college football, of course, you have uh, what's happening in the Ivy League, the Patriot League. It looks like the Ivy League is going to move to spring football. Same thing happening in the Patriot League and a possible trickle down that will happen, maybe not just at the FCS level, but at the FBS level. Uh, my concern with this is move football, college football to the spring is all well and good. If we knew that things were going to be great in the spring, we still don't know that. And, and that's the lingering doubt for me. You're going to move it but there's still no end game that comes along with it. What are your thoughts on this, which seems to be gaining traction in a lot of different leagues and moving up the power scale of moving football, college football to spring? I totally agree with you. I think the number one thing about moving it to spring, like anything, when you think of an idea like that and people do a double take, you have to have somebody that people respect that kind of comes out and says, I'm going to stake my claim to this and say this actually makes sense. And right now that person is Lincoln Riley. I'm not saying he's not powerful enough. He's obviously a coach that's gone to multiple college football playoffs, Heisman, Heisman Trophy runner-ups the last few years. He's done an amazing job, but we probably need somebody a little bigger than that. And I don't just mean a coach. I mean somebody from an overseeing perspective that would actually champion and endorse that. But at least you have one person right now that most college football fans would recognize uh, from a true power that's doing that. To your point, Trent, you're right. There's no guarantee we'll be better. We're all assuming because the experts have said uh, there'll be a vaccine available in 2021, early 2021, if not by the end of the year. So when we cross the calendar, why can't we play college football? I would also remind you, and I'm not you know, taking anything away from these experts, one of the last things all experts said was to wear a mask, right? It was mm-hmm. one of the last it's things true. they said. Touch surfaces, wipe down your Amazon packages, wipe down the grocery store, take a shower, wash your sheets, all <laughs> these sorts of things. And they kept saying, mask isn't necessary, mask isn't necessary. Well, it's not their fault. Then they finally realized with the coronavirus what the droplets and all of that meant. And then they suddenly said, everybody wear a mask if you can to protect yourself and more importantly, protect other people around you. So I agree with you, Trent. Just when you think a proclamation can be made, you kind of look at the virus we're fighting and realize we just don't know enough about it. So there's no possible way we could do that. The only reason to obviously continually push it back is obviously you give yourself a little bit more lag time. If that were to happen, it'll be interesting. I think you'd have to blow off spring football 2021, obviously, just yep. have the season and have everybody report back in August, which wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, especially if the NBA wraps up and has a two-month gap and they're starting again. If it can be done on that level, it can certainly be done at the collegiate level if monitored properly. But that's totally contingent on a vaccine, and our experts are saying it's possible. But even our smartest people, Dr. Redfield, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burke, nobody can guarantee anything, and nobody can guarantee what country that vaccine would be available if that vaccine is first available in china i would imagine the united states would not be able to get their hands on it because of some of the discord between the two countries so it really happens on when the virus is having a vaccine and in geopolitically what country comes up with the vaccine because that could really really control who gets the first dose i can guarantee you this zuba mahente the thursday night july the 23rd there'll be more people watching the baseball game at six o'clock yankees and the nationals than maybe ever before i mean opening night's going to set some records we're all starving for sports here comes the yankees then later on follow it up with the giants and the dodgers best rivalry out on the west coast uh thursday night uh, the numbers i think are going to be mind-boggling I would agree, because any time we've been jonesing for something, you've seen the numbers go up. Whether it's NASCAR, numbers have gone up 8%. That's a sport that generally has struggled over the years, yet their ratings are up. Obviously, there's been some uh, social stories in and around NASCAR that may have brought the casual viewer or a man or woman to the table. But NASCAR is an example of a sport that was not surging and is now 
surging in popularity. UFC, a sport that a lot of people mm-hmm. were just generally unfamiliar with. People are now paying to watch pay-per-views. So it's a good indicator for baseball. I think it's a shoulder shrug. I know people have said the Dodgers and the Giants are playing 10 times this year and seven times in Los Angeles, and how can we make that equitable? I think at this point of the year for a series like that or a situation like that, you just got to say everybody's just got to grin and bear it for the year. Yankees-Nats I think is going to be great. It'll be fascinating to see what it's like with nobody in the stands. I think these are the sorts of things that when you watch them, you'll just sort of say to yourself, um, I have no idea what to expect because I think that's one of some of the anticipation. Some people just want sports back. I just want to see Strasburg on the mound. I just want to see Clayton Kershaw on the mound. And other people that are just going to watch to see what's the real difference, some of the nuanced differences, some of the general differences. So I, I think some people are going to watch from a curiosity standpoint for sure. And then I think a lot of people are going to watch just because they want baseball back. And I think it's, it's imperative and crucial that baseball is back before the NBA and the NHL because, as we mentioned weeks before, once those two sports jump into their postseason and the NBA is playing a game in the afternoon and we'll see what works with the NHL, if those regular season baseball games are going to be up against playoff basketball or hockey, I think many people might choose the latter. So baseball can get out in front, put the product out there, find it strangely or eerily cool to watch, and they can just sort of grab the viewer first. You never know what could happen down the rest of the way. But, uh, yeah, July 23rd, for all the I said last week, for all the drama for Major League Baseball and all the bitterness and everything between Clark and Manfred and the grievance and what's going to happen next year, it's still the first of the four back, believe it or not. It's despite all yep. the craziness. It'll be first pitch before kickoff, before tip-off, before face-off. And even though baseball's in a terrible spot right now, they've got to be happy that they're going to be back first and make sure their product is out there to everybody before everybody else. Uh, a little breaking news. Texas State Fair has been canceled, but... Mm. Oklahoma, Texas goes on, uh, but the state fair is off. Super last thing for you. Uh, Sunday night, uh, I watched with, uh, I, I loved it. The Eagles concert. It was a three hour affair on ESPN of all stations. I uh, saw some piece. I think John O'Ran wrote today that there may be more of this in the future. I thought it was great. I thought it was thinking outside the box to put it on ESPN and to Berman, uh, to have him, uh, do the lead in. Have you seen any numbers? What was the feedback? on the Eagles concert airing on ESPN from 7 to 10 Central Time this past Sunday. Yeah, that really was cool. Definitely out of the box. I mean, I think sometimes the most out of the box we can do if we don't have sports is to air like a sports movie, right? We've done, I think we had the Mighty Ducks over the weekend or Friday night or something like that. We kind of have those sports movies, Secretariat, yep. Mighty Ducks. But this is a total departure. Berman is actually a huge Eagles fan. Huge. Eagles fan. And if you've watched him over the years with the nicknames and all that stuff, he's actually incorporated music a ton into it. He's actually a big music guy, but a huge Eagles guy. The one thing I would say, if you haven't had a chance to watch it, this is more of a nerdy technology thing. They shot it in 2018 on 14 what they call 4K cameras. It is an unbelievable watch. It just I mean, it looks like HD and then then some. And these cameras are uber, uber expensive. So obviously you're listening for the music and you're listening for Don Henley, and you're listening for all the great hits. But if you were to just watch it or find it, if it's being repeated, I think just, I don't know if you agree, Ken, just from the visual standpoint, the way it was shot with these cameras really makes it pop off the screen. After all, it is vision, it is television. Music was great, but the way it was produced, I think, is something you're going to see in the future with these super expensive, high-def cameras that are now coming into play. And, you know, at one point, maybe they'll come into the world in which we work. But uh, just to accentuate the musicians, to accentuate the scene, 
it really was visually appealing. Zubin, uh, listen, uh, if indeed their congratulations are in order, uh, then obviously you'll hear from Trent and I and next week, as you mentioned. Uh, maybe you'll have an announcement uh, uh, that you can make official. We shall see. If not, Zubin, TV and Sports Center, not a bad fallback plan for you. <laughs> Zubin, thank you. Appreciate it as always. See you next week. Good to talk to you. Zubin Mahente from ESPN TV Radio. Both. With the simulcast again, five to six, and then they take two hours off from six until eight, yep. and then they come back from eight until nine. So uh, maybe keep a lookout at ESPN's newsroom later today. That oh, website that what... where the press release uh-huh. comes might see something. Think... Not saying, just uh-huh. saying. <laughs> I think you have a little birdie was cheeping, <laughs> chirping in your ear when well. you were jumping on the phone. All right, we will uh, come back. Rob Doster from NBC Sports is college basketball. Moving up a couple of weeks. It's being talked about. Uh, Kegsville, by the way, there was a winner in the building. Yes. No, not here. WHO on the board. Let's get one for X and O. Let's go. That's right. Simon Conway show had one uh, yesterday afternoon. Kex and O and iHeart want to help you pay your bills. Text the keyword bills to 200-200 right now for your chance to win $1,000. That's bills to 200-200. You'll get a confirmation text and info. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. All right, Miller and Condon, Rob Doster joins us next. By the way, bills. What are the Buffalo Bills? Uh, what are the bills? Uh, Buffalo Bill Cody. But they didn't name him after a, a oh, cowboy, they did they? Have, maybe. Oh, I didn't know that. There's your homework. No, but seriously, though, what are the Buffalo Bills? That's what I always assumed it was. I'm going to look right now. All right. Uh, We'll have Rob Doster when we come back. And the answer. Well, maybe. Hopefully we'll find something out. What could it possibly be? Is there an owner named Bill before Ralph Wilson took over? I don't know. Bill Jones was the owner? Uh, Miller and Condon till noon. Rob Doster on College Basketball next. Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.0. Ken Miller, Trent Condon, Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. Hi, welcome back. Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO. Rob Doster in just a minute. The Buffalo Bills are named after Buffalo Bill Cody. I had that. You did have that. You didn't have where he was born. He's from Iowa. I didn't. I I had no clue. I know the origins of the Buffalo Bills, but I don't know Buffalo Bill was born in Iowa. And uh, then they moved to Toronto and then back to the Midwest. So I I don't get the There's obviously zero connection to the city of Buffalo. Well, they were named uh, the original team before they joined the AFL, the Buffalo Bills. They were the Bison. So... The owner was also the owner of Frontier Oil, mm-hmm. Frontier, Buffalo Bill, connecting dots. It's a stretch. That is a stretch. The Bison are the AAA affiliate, are they not? I believe they are. Yeah, that sounds yeah, right. I believe they are. Uh, so uh, the Buffalo Bill's named after. <laughs> Never know what's going to come I up. went down a Buffalo Bill rabbit hole during the break. It's a fun one. I guess. Uh, Rob Doster joins us. Even though uh, Rob was wrong about Obi Toppin being the player of the year in college basketball, he missed that one, but he's still a very bright mind on college hoops. Rob, Trent, and Ken, good to talk to you, Rob Doster. How are you? Well, you said I was a very bright mind, but I put on two different socks today, so I don't know how bright I actually am. That might be fake news. Uh, no big deal. Good to talk. What are you getting dressed up for? Where, where are you going? 
sometimes you know you got to make a run to CVS. Sometimes okay. you got to make a run to the grocery store. Sometimes you got to restock all the bananas so that kids have something to eat. Man, it's it's uh, it's important. Sometimes you got to do these things. How was New Jersey during the the worst of things? That's where you live still, right? And New Jersey was obviously New York, New Jersey, and that uh, corridor hit as hard in the beginning as anybody. What was it like? Well, they got it much worse farther north than where I am. I live. Okay. When people think of New Jersey, they think of the the Across suburbs the river. around yep. New York, right? But I live in the suburbs around Philadelphia, and I don't know if people uh, realize that they're like the where I live in New Jersey. Everybody is Eagles fans. Where I live in New Jersey, when you go across the river, you're going into Pennsylvania. You're not going into New York. So um, we didn't get get it quite as bad in our area, but everything was shut down in the state until probably about two weeks ago, and it's still like it, you you don't. You can't eat inside a restaurant. If you're going to go to a restaurant, you still have to go and you have to sit outside. And uh, everywhere in the state, masks are required to be worn. So it's still very much um, – we're not anywhere near getting back to, to normalcy around these parts. But, but you know, the, the beaches are open, um, and uh, people are getting pretty reckless down there. So I don't think I'm going to be making any beach vacations anytime soon. Makes a lot of sense. Rob Doster joining us, NBCSports.com. You know, Rob, when we talk, it's crazy how often our little state here becomes national headlines. Luca Garza, his decision possibly coming back. He'll certainly be the preseason player of the year in college basketball if he does come back. But uh, just yesterday, Rasir Bolton of Iowa State comes out and another national story a noose remark made by Pat Chambers of Penn State and the decision that he decided to make leaving Penn State because of those remarks. Can Pat Chambers survive after this? Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't think that, you know, even the guy that wrote the story in the undefeated that kind of broke this news wasn't necessarily calling for his job. And um, I think the, the, the reason for that is, um, you know, it kind of depends on what your interpretation of that specific situation is, but uh, it, it does seem clear that um, that Pat, Pat Chambers was remorseful, that he was not being um, discriminatory intentionally in what he said. That he just it, it was a it was a turn of phrase, and he did not realize when he said it what the implications were. So, to me, I, I think that I, it, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that we can just go out and, and cut everybody away from their job when they're doing something that maybe they did not necessarily realize was the wrong thing and the, and the wrong thing to do. You know, a part of this um, this movement, and, and something that I, I vehemently support, is educating people that don't know any better, right? And if they don't know any better, and you're going to punish them for something that they said when they didn't know any better, that I, I don't, I think that kind of defeats the purpose, right? So if you are, uh, if you have done things in your life where you have made mistakes and said things that maybe you shouldn't have said that you now realize as an older person, um, and a wiser person than someone that has listened to what people are trying to tell you, and you make those changes in your life, and you actively fight to make things better, and you actively are an ally and try to fix this, like, I, I think that that is the kind of thing where you want to keep those people around, right? And um, I do think it's telling that it wasn't just, uh, like, everybody on the team knew what was said and knew what Pat Chambers said for Sierra Bolton, and not everybody on that team left the program, right? So, um, I, that's not meant as a criticism of Rasir or his decision to leave. You know, I, I can't put myself in his shoes and know what he felt in that moment. Uh, but I do think that it, it, it does kind of tell you, tells you like what Pat Chambers stands for 
um, beyond the fact that, you know, he said something really dumb. And, and you know, you got to give him credit. He came out and, and he owned it. his statement and he said what he, he said what yeah. he said was wrong. He owned it. He said he wants to be better. So um, if it is somebody, like if you are trying to educate yourself and make yourself better after saying something wrong, I, I don't think that that is uh, cause for losing his job. Now, if you want to say the fact that he's been at Penn State for like a decade and hasn't gotten to the NCAA tournament is something that you should fire him for, you know, I don't think I would necessarily argue with you on that one, but uh, it's. I don't think that this is the kind of thing that is going to cost him his job, especially since the people that, that kind of broke the story were not calling for his job, right? Like, there's a certain way, the way this stuff kind of happens, right? Whenever you break this news, the tone of the first person to break that story kind of ends up being what the tone is for the entire movement, if that makes sense. Like, this is kind of how this media business works. And seeing as Jesse Washington did not come out and specifically and explicitly say he wants Pat Chambers fired. I think he actually said in the story, like, I don't want him to lose his job. I, I think to me that kind of says, you know, that this is a situation where we everybody needs to actively work together to be better. And I don't think that just firing him in this situation is the kind of thing that's going to actively make people better. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's, in some ways it does. I mean, what he said was just, you, you can't do that, and I get it. Um, he, learned, he owned it right off the bat. You know, my biggest takeaway on the whole thing was, uh, Rob, yeah, what Chambers said was just awful. Um, but the way Penn State handled, or, or in this case, really didn't handle it. I mean, you would think if any school would have learned the public relations aspect of handling crises, Penn State would be on top of that list, right? I mean, 2011, 12, 10, whatever it was, wasn't that too many years ago that they were dealing with the fallout from Jerry Sandusky. Then they get this. Uh, you know the, um, the this story breaks, and there's no follow up from any of the the people uh, that uh, the, you would have psychologists, whoever they wanted to teach him how to you know understand chambers better. But there was really a lack of follow up from the from the institution. I think that was maybe as big a part of the story as anything. Yeah, and you know I don't think that we necessarily heard their side of all of this. At least I didn't see their side of all of this to explain. Uh, uh, to have a chance to try to explain what they were thinking, but I, I do agree with you that people that ended up coming uh, coming out looking the worst out of all of everybody involved in the story was uh, that Penn State administration and the people. It, it very much seemed like they were trying to sweep it un, under the rug, right? Like, I don't know if we can definitively say that based on what, uh, uh, what was discussed, but it very, very much seemed like they were trying to sweep it under the rug, and that's a very bad look for a for a athletic department that allowed um, Jerry Sandusky to operate and do the things that he was doing for what was it, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So um, that is definitely concerning in the kind of thing where I do hope that they have uh, take a long look at themselves. I'm not confident they will. I doubt they actually will, but it's the kind of thing where you have to have a long look and a long talk with yourself and say, are we doing this thing the right way? A lot of uh, projections of what this college basketball season is going to look like. It It's going to be different, no doubt, but Let's say we do have games on the hardwood and everything goes according to plan. You've updated your top 25. You got Iwit number eight, a preseason national player of the year that comes in with the accolades of a Luca Garza. When's the last time? Can you remember the last time we had somebody like this, though? He wasn't your player of the year. He was a couple of different ones out there. This guy with that kind of college resume coming back for another season. Can you remember the last time, Rob? Probably Doug McDermott, right? Yeah. It's got to be Doug McDermott, I think. Um, I did. So, I, 
I think that Cassius Winston kind of falls into that same conversation as well because I think that he he wasn't a consensus first-team All-American last year um, or in the uh, 2019 season, but he was, for me, a first-team All-American. He was a consensus second-team uh, All-American, and he came back and was the preseason National Player of the Year as a senior despite the fact that he probably would have gotten drafted had he gone to the NBA. So I do think that that's something that, that kind of falls along those same lines. But the difference is, like, Everybody kind of agrees that Luca Garza, despite the fact that he averaged what, like twenty three and ten, when he was at uh, last year for Iowa, mm-hmm. like despite the fact that he put up these ridiculous numbers, everyone kind of agrees, like, hey, you know, maybe this guy isn't really cut out for the NBA. So, um, to me, that's the most interesting part about this. It's like, it's not often that we see guys that end up being uh, as good as Luca Garza was at the college level, not really having a chance to get to the NBA. Like normally, for the most part. Generally speaking, if you are going to go out there and you uh, you give it to everybody in the Big Ten, the way that Luca Garza gave it to everybody in the Big Ten, generally speaking, if you are good enough to do that, you're probably good enough to play in the NBA. Yet here he is, and everyone's kind of saying, yeah, I don't think he's quite going to make it. Uh, what about the schedule moving forward, Rod? There's been some talk over the last couple of days that uh, uh, the Dan Gavitt is floating it out there uh, that the we they may have to move college basketball up by a couple of weeks. He said optics-wise, when there's no kids on campus in the month of December, that it'll be tough to ask the student-athletes to stick around for an extra six weeks when everybody else has gone home to be safe in their own homes away from maybe another surge in, in, in the virus. What about moving the schedule up? How likely is it? Oh man, like I don't, I just don't understand how you can move the schedule up at this point in time when we're talking about potentially having to move football back to the spring, right? Like we're all worried about the second wave. Well, has the first wave even ended? You know, are are we still at a point where we should start up talking about a second wave when we really cannot get the first wave under control? When Arizona and Florida and Texas are are putting up record uh, new cases? When you see videos from every different state around the country where you have people at these like massive July 4th parties, and like, I get it. I'm not trying to say that like, college athletes are going to be dying by the handful once they get, uh, get COVID 19. Um, and however you want to feel about what the effects of this virus are and what kind of impact it has on people in real life and whether or not you can wear a mask, whatever. Like, you can have all of your opinions on that that you want. But what everybody has made very, very clear over the course of the last four months is that if this virus is spreading, we are not going to be doing things as a country, right? Like, you can sit there, whatever opinion you want to have about coronavirus, call it a hope if you want. But you do have to understand that as long as this virus is spreading, we are not going to be doing things. And I just don't understand how you can go out there and do things and play basketball games and play football games. And, you know, the biggest thing about it is it's not – the games itself is going to be the problem for these kids, right? And it's not the games themselves that are going to create the issue. It's actually being on campus, right? It is being in a dorm. It is uh, being involved with the student body. It is um, going to frat parties. Those are the things that you have to be worried about right. in this situation if you are, are one of these coaches or one of these players or one of these organizations, right? It is uh, these players potentially bringing um, this disease back to their uh, – Back, back to their families, to somebody that might have a condition that, that makes it so it actually is lethal for them, to their grandmas, right? And the issue is you cannot play college basketball games if students are not on campus because that basically confirms that 
college athletes are not actual student athletes. They're athletes that are there to generate money for the university. There's no way that you can sit here and say that these guys are amateurs, that what they are doing is not something that is for profit, that is not something for business, that is strictly for the love of the game, and then run them out there and have them on campus uh, when all of the students are kept at home because it's not safe enough to have the court. Like, you, you just can't do that. So if this virus isn't under control and it is still spreading and you are still asking all these people to go back to campus and you're putting them at risk, like, you, you can't do it that way. And the other problem is, like, a lot of these conferences are just so spread out. So let's take the Big 12, right? If things are going, if COVID-19 and coronavirus is spreading like crazy on, let's just say, the Baylor campus in Waco, Texas, it's just going absolutely crazy, right? There's a huge outbreak there. And it's happening in January. And on January 15th, uh, Baylor is supposed to play at Hilton Coliseum in, in the state of Iowa. They kind of had things under control. Like, do, do the people of Iowa actually want to allow this into their state? Right? right? Does mm. does that uh, that athletic director or does that school president or does that coach or does anyone on that, that basketball team, like, do they want to have those guys come there when they know that it's, it's just spreading like wildfire across the campus? Like, those are the problems that you're going to run into. And I just I don't understand how you're going to be able to do it in this situation. So, uh, I, hopefully there's people out there that are listening. Like, wearing a mask is not that bad. I'm about to go put one on and go to the store to go to ShopRite, to go to CVS, to go buy all this stuff. It really is not that bad to just wear a mask when you walk into a store and wear a mask when you're around people. And if you want to have basketball, if you want to have college basketball, if you want to have uh, college sports, if you want to do get anywhere back to normalcy, just wear the mask. It's really not that bad. Uh, Rob Doster, uh, NBCSports.com. Rob, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, guys. Good to talk to you. Rob Doster uh, joining us as we talk a little college basketball. Yeah, I, I read something today. The, uh, the, the, the one group of people that are really affected by a mask, mm-hmm. hearing impaired. Oh, because can't they can't read lips. Can't read lips. Yeah. That makes sense. It does make sense. Uh, absolutely does. Mm-hmm. We'll come back, finish things up. Miller and Condon until noon, Des Moines Sports Station, 14. Hey. Final couple of minutes on a Tuesday. Cappy joins us tomorrow. David Kaplan. Now, I can't get into anybody's head. I for and we said this last year. I had there's um, no doubt in my mind that uh, Gary Dolphin took off his microphone after the Maryland game a couple of years ago. Went home. I don't pour himself a drink. Whatever he does, thought mm-hmm. there's you know there's. Just, I just called another game. Had no idea what was awaiting him the next day. All right. Uh, Pat Chambers. That's a, I, I can't get into his head. Was there a time that he said that to Rasir Bolton? Oh, I shouldn't have said it that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was not the right way to phrase it. You don't know. You right? don't know. You, and but that's just egregious. From man. from where we were twenty five hours ago when we first talked about this to where I am now. Yeah. I can understand at least I think Pat Chambers a little bit more. It, it it's a term when you look at the racial aspect is just awful. Mm-hmm. I mean that there is no way around it. But with the context, if we take what he's saying at at the surface level and make it believable, okay. But you could use a want to get a weight off your shoulders, right? Right, and that's and he put a smile on your face, have fun out there, those type of things. But he you can't get in his head. No, you can't. And would he has he said the same thing to a white guy? <laughs> yeah, good question. You know, and and maybe he has. Uh-huh. And 
he doesn't have that racial component, doesn't jump into his mind. It's These are the difficult conversations, mm-hmm. though, that we're having and, and trying to, to understand. Yeah, And have to. And a tip of the ball cap again to Rasir Bolton and what he oh, said. Oh, he handled it so well, man. Yeah. He's, uh, and good for him for getting out there and um, and, uh, and and stating his piece the way that uh, the way that he did. A lot of people have a um, a newfound respect for Rasir Bolton. Whether mm-hmm. you like Iowa State or whether you don't, I would like to believe that uh, uh, everybody felt the same way about his statement. But, but, but Pat, Pat Chambers, man, I don't know. Do you survive this? I don't think Gary Dolphin... Is racist one minute. I don't. Mm-hmm. But that's... Uh, Anyways, uh, so that's going to end things for today. Had a good show. Blair Kirkhoff, Kansas City Star, very timely on Patrick Mahomes, who broke the bank. Boy, they the way that they've structured the contract, this might be the first huge contract for a quarterback that doesn't hurt the team for a few years. That's and not just a few years. Long term, this not. is team fr- as team-friendly as a $500 million <laughs> deal can be. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. Uh, thank you to John Walters. Thank you to Zubin Mahente. Maybe an announcement about our buddy later on. And to Rob Doster. Murph and Andy, two fanatics at four. Morning Rush back on your airwaves tomorrow at 6 a.m. Thanks for being here. 1460, 106.9.